the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome and thanks again for tuning in to a brand new episode here at Sake On Air, the world's very first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular hosts here on the show, a show that would not be possible without the fantastic and generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. This week, we get a chance to discuss another topic that is rather dear and close to my heart, and that's beer. Well, beer and, of course, sake as well. In recent years, that relationship between beer and sake has been overlapping and crisscrossing in all kinds of new and really exciting ways, both domestically here in Japan, as well as across the globe. This week, I'm joined by Mr. Rye Bevel. Rye is the president of Brightwave Media, which is the publisher of Sake Today, the world's first English language magazine dedicated to, as you could probably guess, sake as well as publisher of the Japan Beer Times, which is an entirely bilingual publication here that explores the ins and outs of Japan's beer industry. Today, he takes us on a journey looking at the historical development of Japan's beer industry, how that evolution influenced the relationship between sake and beer, how both of those beverages and those breweries are working together today, and what we might expect from both of these worlds in the not-so-distant future. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump right into our conversation this week about where beer and sake collide with Mr. Rye Bevel. All right, so here we are. We are joined this morning by Mr. Rye Bevel, president of Brightwave Media, who is the publisher of Sake Today, the world's first English language sake-specific magazine, as well as the Japan Beer Times, which is an entirely bilingual publication that explores the ins and outs of Japan's beer industry. Uh, you also have a little something going on in Yokohama, I believe, Yokohama Seaside, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, Yokohama Seaside is a monthly Seaside. publication about Perfect. basically uh, culture and events in Yokohama. Excellent, excellent. Also bilingual. Excellent, excellent. So, right, thank you so much for setting aside a, a few minutes to join us this morning to talk about sake and beer. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're it's, a, it. it's a topic. It's a topic I I, I love and and know a little bit about. So I'm happy right. to talk about it. Excellent, and it gives us an excuse to talk about beer, which we don't usually get to do all mm. that often. So this is this is a great opportunity for us as well too, because I imagine that there's a good deal of overlap. And Indeed, there is between those who enjoy a glass of sake and a delicious beer. So I'm very excited to talk about to speak with you about both of those topics here today. Just to get started, why don't you tell us just a little bit about uh, Brightwave Media? I introduced you briefly there. Japan Beer Times, Sake Today. Just give us a little, just a bit of background as to sort of what those publications are about and and what you're up to there at Brightwave. Great. Um, Brightwave Media is, as it sounds, a media company. Uh, originally started out as a magazine company, probably back around 2008. But media has become multimedia in this day and age. So we, in addition to our magazines in both print and digital, of course, we you know have websites, apps, social media, all of that, and have spread into to video and things like that. Um, when it started out, 
our primary interest was culture, which is pretty broad, but we were into, you know, art, literature, music, things like that. And um, unfortunately, people don't care about culture so much, it seems, or at least it's very difficult to monetize. And so we found ourselves quickly morphing into a kind of food and beverage media company. And that's where, where we are today. We still care about culture and we do write about it in our Yokohama magazine. And we, we try to touch on cultural and historical aspects in both Sake Today and Japan Beer Times. Anyone who reads Sake Today knows that it's not completely sake focused. It, we focus a lot on, again, travel, history, culture, uh, kind of a, a national geographic of sake, if you will. It's the, the, um, so that got started in 2008. Eight roughly. And that was interesting because it really goes back to my roots in Japan. I came to Japan um, as a student uh, in 1995, 96, uh, Nanzan University in Nagoya. And then I came back in 1997 on the JET program to Fukuoka. But interestingly, I wasn't assigned to teach. I was put in an international center and asked to start to manage a magazine. It was a, a quarterly a wild uh, B5 size magazine, which is the exact same size as Japan Beer Times. And so for the first three years, I, that's what I did. I, I ran a, a sort of a, a cultural magazine. And if you look at Yokohama Seasider, it's really an extension of that from 1997 to 2000. And then I stayed another two years. I was working on some, you know, as, as a freelancer for other publications, but ultimately decided to go back to graduate school uh, at UC Berkeley. Uh, so I went back to grad school 2002 to six. Uh, I was, I was in, in California and decided to continue with my PhD. Uh, my specialty is Japanese literature. But when I came back in 2006, I immediately jumped back into the, the whole writing and, and, and publishing sort of uh, activity that I'd been doing previously, just kind of out of interest or as a yeah. distraction to my, my PhD. And then um, this was kind of funny. I had a stipend for research and I ended up using my stipend to publish a, a little <laughs> a B, B5 size magazine about culture. And this is how, how it got started. Um, and if, a couple of years after that, a lot of people came to me and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing a beer magazine? I said, well, no, but I'll do it if you guys sponsor me. We were all yeah. drunk, of course. And yeah. they're like, yeah, we'll sponsor you. And that's how <laughs> the Japan Beer Times got started. Again, it was seeded with, with money from my, my Fulbright scholarship <laughs> and um, my, uh, you know, these, these sort of um, these sponsors. And that was an overnight success. The Japan Beer Times is, you know, it's been a, around for about 12 or 13 years. It's huge now. It's, I, mean, that's we, a, it's, I mean, it's a staple here. I mean, for our, yes, uh, a lot of our people you. are... are you know, obviously, sadly, don't don't necessarily have access to it because we're, you know, it's uh -huh. it's here on the island, right? Um, yeah. But it's but we do we do now. I mean, we we have hundreds of subscribers around the world, so we do ship overseas now. Um, I believe it. I, I imagine and, it would be, it would be fascinating for anybody who's just for anybody who's interested in in beer out there just to have that degree of insight into the Japanese beer industry and, is, is fantastic. And, yeah, and the timing was good. I, I must admit, I got lucky. I, I was I started it just as the wave of craft beer was taken off. And we can talk about that history a little yeah. bit later because it is intimately related to sake and beer hybrids. Um, so I was doing that for a few years and I was introduced to John Gauntner by Robert Yellen, who runs the ceramics gallery in, in Kyoto. Yeah. said, you guys really ought to meet up. And I interviewed John Gauntner for uh, a culture magazine that I, I was writing at the time. It, it's gone on um, hiatus, uh, that, that culture magazine. 
And part of that was just the, the, the success of Japan Bear Times and then also launching Sake Today. Uh, because when I met John, I, it must have been five minutes into our, our meeting. We were like, hey, we ought to do a sake magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's how, and that's really how Sake Today got started. We went back to his house. Um, we quickly got just destroyed on about two and a half, three bottles of sake. I don't actually yeah. remember yeah. You know, getting home that night. But that's how Sake <laughs> Today started. John and yeah, I yeah, just yeah. destroying some bottles of sake talking about how we would do it. And we launched it about, gosh, nine years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to the, to the origins, it was funny when I ran into my Fulbright um, advisor or, or like an administrator. And I said, you know, I have a confession to make. I used some of my um, stipend for research to launch this magazine company that I know, you know, that I run Mm-hmm. And I'm, I feel kind of guilty. It's like a beer magazine and a sake yeah. magazine. And he yeah. said, well, listen, make me a promise. One, finish your PhD. Two, if you, if you ever do really well, donate some money back to the Fulbright Foundation. Mm-hmm. So I kept my promise. I did finish my PhD uh, a few years ago. And I also teach part-time at UC California, Berkeley. Oh, excellent. Um, so I, I did fulfill that promise. And at least prior to COVID, the magazines were we're doing extremely well. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be able to fulfill that promise of donating some money back to the Fulbright Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, COVID's been tough on an yeah. advertising-driven business, but we've Absolutely. survived thanks in part to um, loyal advertisers and also our, our growing list of subscribers. So I'm hopeful that you know, we'll, we'll come out of this and the, the business will recover and we'll be able to to donate some money to the Fulbright Foundation on behalf of Sake Today and Japan Beer Times. <laughs> Everything will come full circle. And it'll come full circle and the, yep. and, the, and, the, and the cycle of life continues. Absolutely. So, so that's yeah. what I do. I, I, you know, I run Brightwave Media. Um, uh, I, I have great staff that, that keep the day-to-day going. Like I, I spend more of my time in Berkeley these days uh, than I do in a, at our main office in Yokohama. And like I said, I teach part-time at UC Berkeley um a course on uh japanese literature pre-modern japanese literature my specialty is poetry and then interestingly another course about neurological disability which people which seems very alien to what i'm doing and it is it's strange sometimes to be you know teaching one day about autism and then writing about sake the next day but of course as many people know japan's nobel prize winner in literature in 1995 was Oe Kenzaburo, who writes mm-hmm. extensively about his handicapped child in his literature. And there's some other good, you know, authors writing about disability in Japan. So that's why I teach that course. Yeah. Oh, amazing. We'll, we'll have to have you back on to, to dig into that as well, actually. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, but especially the Japanese literature, because um, sake does appear so much throughout ancient Japanese poetry and literature. And it, it was very, it was an integral part of ritual. And this appears in poetry. And um, I've been researching on the side the relationship between sake and creative production. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's definitely some history there of, of people um, enjoying sake and then, you know, going on these, these sort of literary binges and producing yeah. poetry that hadn't been produced before, perhaps because of sake. So there's, there's some interesting story there. But most of my day-to-day is involved with Sake Today and Japan Beer Times, um, looking again at sake in beer, but through a cultural lens. And um, that's hopefully what we can talk about today. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And- that's, why, that's why we're here. That's great. exactly why we're here. And so, yeah, I'm super excited to kind of explore where 
sake and beer collide because it's, you know, sake is kind of for better or for worse. It's wanted to lean into the world of wine for a long time. It's what kind of wanted to associate itself with that for, Mm -hmm. you know, big, big fan of wine as well. You know, there's a lot of, Uh you know, great associations there. Um, That being said, it's obvious. It's looking at sort of the landscape now. It's really the brewing community, both, you know, hobby as well as professional, um, especially in the world of beer that has really picked up the ball and run with sake overseas. Mm, And where you're starting to see a lot of um, overlaps and hybrids and really interesting things happening here in Japan. Um, But it's really just in, it's relatively recent that you're starting to see a lot of these really intense collaborations and really interesting things coming about you know, probably 10, 15 years ago. I mean, just, I mean, just by the sheer definition of sake and what you can label something as and whatever, everything was just kind of, um, you know, there were quote unquote perceived limitations, I guess, as to what yeah, could be done. Like, whereas things have gotten a lot more experimental, I think. Things were definitely compartmentalized uh, until recently. We'll, we'll look at the, the history. Um, why don't I actually, you know, frame the conversation? Yeah. Um, I, I would say, Sake and beer hybrids or sake and beer interactions have been around at least 160 years. Yeah. Um, I, I think it probably goes back a few hundred years. Um, in Sake Today 30, I actually wrote a feature article about sake and beer hybrids. So I'm going to draw on some of that research. Um, and the history of sake and beer hybrids was really one of necessity. In other words, there were certain, you know, raw materials that weren't available. And so they had to rely on, you know, some, some sort of ingredient from its cousin, whether it be, you know, normally it was beer borrowing from sake while in Japan. Uh, then you get into modern times and the craft beer movement in Japan uh, was big. It, it really laid the groundwork for these sort of experimentations that began, uh, Technically, in 1994, when the government changed the laws to allow for small-scale brewing, the first craft breweries came on board in 1995, and then the craft beer movement sort of took off. It, it did hit a you know a few speed bumps because of poor quality. It you know they, they had growing pains, um, but that sort of marked a, a watershed moment because it was no longer about necessity, but about creativity and experimentation and. Japanese craft brewers certainly were the pioneers of that, Japanese craft beer breweries. And what's interesting about the Japanese craft beer movement is that when the laws changed, many sake breweries threw their hat in the ring saying, hey, we'd like to brew beer as well because sake was traditionally, still is, a a winter beverage that you brew in the winter. And then they could brew beer in the summer and you know, continue to provide employment for their kurabito, their their brewery workers, and also have a, a you know cash flow source. So, in the early part of the Japanese craft beer movement, there were, you know, the, after the first few years, there were probably about three hundred Japanese craft breweries, and I would say about one fourth to one third of them were also sake breweries. Were originally sake breweries. So, yeah. you know, one that everyone knows is. Hitachi no Nest, yeah. uh, Kichi yep. Shuzo. I yep. mean, they were one of the early ones who said, hey, we're going to brew, brew beer too. And their yep. beer has now surpassed their sake by you know, all stretches of the imagination. Yeah, they're, they're known as a beer brewery around the world. Absolutely. Another one, I mean, Japan's arguably their best beer brewery, Shiga Kogen, is yeah. still 
a, a sake brewery. So it was only natural that these brewers who, who are, who are all kind of mavericks, they're all creative people. You know, you don't get into the craft beer industry if you're, I mean, I guess you do, but all the good ones are a little bit different and, um, they have these ingredients and they're looking at them. They're like, Oh, I've got sake in this room. I got beer in this room. Of course they're going to start, you know, mixing the test tubes and, and, and doing interesting things. And that's how it, it started out. But things got really interesting about 10 years ago, actually a little bit longer. And this is something we can talk about more extensively, but I was, I've been a world beer cup judge uh, since 2012 world beer cup is a competition every two years that attracts like literally thousands and thousands of, of brewers from around the world to, to enter. It's the Olympics of beer. And I had the, the honor of being a judge and was uh, assigned to a category called experimental beer. And in that category, there was a beer and sake hybrid. So my first encounter with beer and sake hybrids was 2012, at least that kind. In, in Japan, I, I obviously had, you know, beers made with sake yeast or with, with sake rice. But this was something altogether different. This was a true hybrid of, it was somewhere in between beer and sake where, for example, they had mixed the, the wort. And it's a blind tasting, so we don't really know whose it was. However, yeah. uh, there was a seminar at that same craft brewers conference that was hosted by Todd Bellamy, who is now at Farthest Star Sake uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, Will Myers of Cambridge Brewing Company, who was working with... Um, Todd Bellamy at the, at the time working on a certain sake beer hybrid and also Shettle, uh, a Norwegian brewer who was at Nogane for, for many years. He's since left. I think he's brewing in Crete and splitting his time in the Czech Republic. He's got like a, a brewery in the Czech Republic where he brews beer and he goes back to Crete and, and you know, does his, this other thing. So they were giving a, a seminar about beer and sake hybrid. So clearly, you know, what was entered in the experimental beer category was their beverage. Yeah. And um, they were outside of Japan, the pioneers of beer and sake hybrid. There, I don't think there's really any question. I, maybe there was somebody who, who had done something and it just got lost to the obscurity of history. But as far as anyone's concerned, they were going about this in a very systematic way. Todd knew how to brew sake, Will is, is one of the most respected brewers in America. Um, there's no doubt about this. He won in 2017. There's this Sharer Award. It's given out to uh, by, by industry vote to the, you know, the most innovative brewer of that year. So every year, only one brewer out of tens of thousands you know, get around the world gets this award. Um, Will had that. So you've got just this enormous beer intelligence on one side and you've got you know todd um who was a great ambassador for sake if you think about it 10 years ago those two working together to produce this hybrid um and then of course shettle doing his his experiments as well now what they were doing was pretty far out there back in 2012 yeah. and it still is to this day if you drank yeah. that you you know you'd be like what in the world is this it it, it i remember it thinking it was I'm not really supposed to talk about what goes on behind the doors at, at World yeah, Beer yeah. Cup, but I remember sitting there, you know, it made it to the final round and we were all sitting there drinking it and it was just a love or hate thing. Some people just loved it. I've never had anything like this in my life. And then other judges were saying, well, when I want beer, I drink beer. And when I want sake, I'll drink sake. I don't want to mix them together. Yeah. 
Yep. And I, I thought about that. As, as these yeah, things always like, are. Yep. I was like, fair enough, fair enough. And it's, and that's still kind of where we are in this yeah. day and age when you drink hybrids, some of them push the envelope a little too much for many people. And we can mm-hmm. talk about some of those yeah. others are a little more subtle, but then it begs the question, well, can you really call them a hybrid if they're just, you know, throwing in some sake yeast. And, and of course, in, in my article on sake today, I did interview some pretty respected people who agreed with that. Like, look, just using sake yeast in a beer doesn't really cut it. Anyone can do that. Or just throwing rice in your beer. It's got to be more. Um, Garrett Oliver, for example, mm-hmm. you know, he's the, the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery. Yeah. He's familiar with, you know, he, he's worked with Kiyuchi or Hitachi on this for, for many years. Said that, look, really, unless you've got Koji in it, it's it's not really anything it doesn't really fundamentally change the character of the beer so in my opinion that you know a sake beer hybrid has to have some sort of radical departure from a normal beer and will myers agreed with that todd agrees with that and that that seems to be the consensus among professional brewers who really know the science but for you and me and the average consumer, it's fun to have some of these sort of lighter variations. And I think that's probably what we're going to end up talking about mostly yeah. today. Yeah. So. And that's a really important point. I think you made. And that's really interesting that the ones who are actually pioneers in this were actually sake breweries in a way, both mm-hmm. out of, uh, out of necessity to a degree, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, in a struggling sake industry to have to come up with some other revenue streams and other ways of keeping people employed. And the, and now, and now it's the, to a certain degree, I guess, leading beer craft beer breweries here in Japan. A lot of those are the ones that laid the groundwork in the, mm-hmm. in the mid nineties or late nineties, right. They were, they right. were really early on in there, but that there's definitely been an evolution in there. And you, you mentioned something interesting uh, too, um, that basically there are two sides to this. There are beer brewers who are, or there there's beer that's sort of leaning towards sake or borrowing from sake, or you have sake that's moving toward beer and the craft brewers of beer are doing these sort of hybrids or fusions out of creative pursuit. Mm. Really? There's no necessity there. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the sake brewers, I feel like they're doing this yes for creativity but they're definitely driven by different prerogatives you know you might have a dry hop sake for example Mm -hmm. what's the point of that is it creativity no they're trying to lure in the beer drinker there's some you know there's some some economic um concerns here you know at play and then in america where you have about two dozen uh sake breweries now quite a lot of them are doing some sort of hopped sake or infused sake, beer-like sake. And again, they're trying to bridge that gap between the beer drinking community that they see and their own products, which are a little bit alienated from that. I mean, sake still, it's, it's sort of mainstream, but not. I mean, people are familiar. So what I think they're trying to do is attract brewers. Now, is, the question is, is it working? Is it healthy for the sake industry? I don't have any problem with hybrids. They are what they are. Yeah. But I do worry that, for example, at least in America, the sake industry needs to perhaps think a little more carefully about its identity or the identity of sake mm. and really push those beverages perhaps before 
they start pumping out all of these hybrids and infused drinks and really kind of blur the boundaries and confuse consumers about what sake actually is. So I think there are some concerns, but I definitely celebrate, you know, this experimentation and, and sure that if, if you're a sake brewer and you want to, you know, make a new product and you want to make some money and you think hop sake would work great, but yeah. you know, there'd be monsters here. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's interesting. You mentioned before as well too, that there's actually a relatively long history of at least here in Japan beer breweries say whether it's or whatnot through uh, for one reason or another through limited access to raw materials or something like that Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to trying to make a hybrid it was like well Mm -hmm. we don't really have much of a choice so we're we have to lead into lean into these adjuncts or you know find something else to kind of kind of blur these lines and that ends up kind of blurring those lines for a period of time and while, while the definitions are pretty clear as to what you can put in a, in a, in a tank to brew sake nowadays, mm-hmm. the, the further you go back, the more blurry it gets, you know, over time. If, I mean, if you go way, 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 way back, I mean, to sort of, you know, pre pre-modern sake, right. You have people using millet and different types of grains and different, you know, it was sort of a matter of what was accessible and what was, and, you know. And if you go, if you go way back, you know, there's a, um, a colleague of mine at UC Berkeley, she's an anthropologist um, who has done some research on pottery and, Mm. you know, chemical analysis of some of the substances. And so I've spoken to her about, let's call it sake just for lack of a better word, but this fermented beverage, obviously they were drinking and and it, it, you know, combination of rice and tubers, mushrooms, Mm -hmm. things like like really anything that they could ferment. And that was, that's consistent with prehistoric societies elsewhere. It's certainly not the Chinese mainland. I've also, you know, connected with, anthropologists from MIT and Harvard who are doing similar research on clay pots in China. And they've come to similar conclusions that primitive people were brewing a, some sort of mash, some sort of sake or beer like substance It you know, when, when did uh, multiple parallel fermentation actually get discovered? When did it, yeah. you know, branch away from beer or beer from whatever that mash is, but yeah. um, you know, they were all doing it. And a lot of it was driven by necessity. I mean, same thing if you go to Egypt, like what they were brewing was, was you know, a little different from what they were doing in, in China. Um, the oldest archaeological evidence for, for brewed um, material, by the way, does go to China. Um, e- Egypt, obviously, or the Mesopotamia is, is old, and we're all familiar with that. And of course, the story of the pyramids, but it really the oldest archaeological evidence goes to China. So people have been brewing there for some time with what they were able to brew with. Of course, prehistoric people made it across to Japan and they were brewing whatever it is that they were brewing. And that, you know, eventually evolved into sake. Although as, as we know, more sophisticated brewing techniques came into Japan uh, via Buddhism, you know, back around maybe fourth, fifth century. And then of course, um, Buddhist temples, especially in Nara, um, were the, became the centers of brewing. And, and I mean, these were like technology centers, right? Absolutely. They were, they were essentially I mean, it, university yeah, it's in, just mind, in, in, in a medieval sense. I guess. It's absolutely mind blowing yeah. what they knew and what they discovered and, and how much scientific control they had over their brewing processes, probably in the, in the seventh century. I mean, it's very primitive compared to what we have today, but you know, they, they sort of knew what they were doing. So, you know, you had that <clears throat> long history of sake brewing in Japan. 
Um, but then dun, 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 the Portuguese arrive, right? And this would have been, um, what, 1543 when the Portuguese arrived. Um, they were there to proselytize. You know, they wanted to convert people into Christianity. Makes you question, you know, did they have beer on their boat? Probably. I mean, beer was pretty popular back then. It was also pretty, you know, pretty sanitary. Did they bottle beer? I mean, we can only speculate. But what I mentioned in my research, what's almost more certain is, you know, the Dutch arrived in 1600 and they were not there to convert people to Christianity. They were there to trade. They were there for business. And it seems pretty certain they had beer. Um, and that's backed up by uh, actual textual evidence. Uh, and this isn't actually uh, my personal research. Um, there's a professor at Kandai University in Osaka, uh, Professor Mark Melly. Um, he wrote a book that we published about 10 years ago called Craft Beer in Japan, The Essential Guide. And he looks at the history of beer in Japan. But it was very helpful because I could see, okay, well, where where were, would the intersections between mm. sake and beer have been? And I'd like to, if I, if I could, uh, yeah. read this passage from yeah, go his for book. It. Please do. Uh, he wrote, several Japanese associated with the Dutch would have had a chance to taste the drink, meaning beer, though the earliest clear reference comes from a record called the Oranda Mondo, or Discussions with Hollanders, from 1727, when Dutch captain Johannes Thedens brought beer to Edo as part of his tribute to the shogun. And uh, the Japanese wrote, the Dutch make sake from grapes and they also make sake from barley. I had a chance to drink this latter and it was absolutely horrible. It had no flavor at all and they call it beer. <laughs> so that, you know, that was, that was um, 1727. Yeah. And you can imagine they were, you know, what, what would it have been uh, possibly, who, who knows what, what the Dutch would have, would have brought it skunked along the way. Um, or, you know, were they brewing something in there, you know, on the boats? And it seems um, that they were likely brewing it. The first evidence we have, though, uh, goes to early 1800s, uh, after the Dutch were basically relegated to doing business on Dejima. This is the island, of course, in Nagasaki after Japan had closed its borders and said, um, you may trade, but you got to stay here stationed in, in Dejima. So they were definitely brewing and they were definitely drinking and bringing beer in. And the Dutch worked extensively with the Japanese, you know, they had carpenters come and build and they were going out and they had trading posts and there were interactions um, between Dutch and um, Japanese. There were very intimate interactions between Dutch and Japanese, as we know from um, several Dutch that had children with Japanese women who went on you know, to become leaders in, in, in society. And the problem was when the, you know, Napoleon started war in Europe, 18, you know, 1803 to 1815, uh, Dutch ships were unable to make the voyage to Japan to, to restock. And these, these Dutch um, settlers or, or traders in Japan fell on hard times and were desperate to brew. And they were, they were definitely brewing using local ingredients. And there are some records of them having tried to make um, beer with buckwheat or soba. And if I could, uh, I'd like to read another passage from Mark Melly's book. Sure. Um, so again, they were probably brewing 
in, in the 1800s, early 1800s, there on Dejimo using whatever they could. Yeah. There was no beer coming from Japan. So it, the question I've had and that I've asked people and, and no one has a conclusive answer is where were they getting the yeast? So if there were there was beer coming and it was live bottled, it's possible they could have pitched some live bottled yeast, or they you know had had uh, what do you you know if you look at old beer sometimes you've got yeast deposits and it, it's possible you could get a viable yeast from you know from things like that. Um, well, Mark wrote there is also a record from 1836 saying that the Dutch were using soba, Japanese buckwheat, to make beer. The record also states that they were using koji made from barley. This could have been the mistaken assumption of someone who was familiar with sake brewing, or maybe the Dutch, without access to maltings, found a way to brew beer with koji. An interesting question. At any rate, one cringes, imagining the beer that sailors would have been able to brew in hot, humid Kyushu with the grains that were available to them. So they were making some nasty ass mash with yeah. whatever you know stuff they could get yeah. their hands on i mean they were going back to to the days of barbarians making gruit in in europe basically yeah. just out of yeah. tells you how much people need their beer yeah, 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 yeah but i think it's pretty likely they were pitching sake yeast they were i mean they knew how to brew they had interactions with the locals they've no doubt tried sake or saw sake breweries went inside could see that the process was very similar to beer. Yeah. Uh, maybe they called it a rice beer. We don't really know, yeah. but it's likely they took, you know, foam or some of the mash and they pitched that into their beer. I just, it seems impossible that they didn't. That they right? didn't in some capacity. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're essentially right. They're, they're thriving in an environment where all those things are, are standard, mm -hmm. right. When it comes to brewing practice. And so, uh, so, I mean, those are just, Two examples that really stand out in history. Yeah. And I'm guessing there were more. Um, did you know it would be interesting to find local records down there of, of Japanese who had written about having tried beer, or tasted beer. I haven't haven't found them. I haven't really gone looking that deeply. Because I think the, the, the picture's pretty clear from these examples that there was some interaction between the two. Then where it gets really interesting, um, is later in the 19th century, of course, uh, 1853 was when Commodore Perry showed up with his black steam ships, yep. uh, warships, basically saying, hey, open up, we'll be back. Yeah. And of course, this, you know, in engendered this um, monumental shift in society in Japan, where, you know, they, they said, oh, gosh, we've got to catch up to the West, we've got to modernize, we've got to go and, and learn. Um, but you know, prior to that in 1868, there was some soft opening up of Japan. There was some exchange of knowledge and um, there was certain scientific texts and things like that making its way in. And, you know, beer is science. And mm -hmm. one of these illuminaries, these intellectuals, Komin Kawamoto, he lived 1810 to 1871. He was based in, in modern day Kobe area. He uh, was a doctor also a scholar, a polyglot, just a brilliant human being and was really curious about beer. He had had, you know, obviously he had had some sort of interaction with beer, probably Dutch traders. It could have been, you know, um, interactions with other foreigners that had made it in uh, because of his background and his learning. He would have been in places where he might have had an opportunity to drink beer. Uh, he, in other words, you know, he would have uh, been 
a part of entourages that would have met the foreigners. And so he tried to make beer. Um, where he got the recipe or how he figured it out, I don't know, but he tried to make beer and that would have been what, 1850s? Um, it seems, actually it doesn't, it's not that it seems, um, he had to have used sake yeast. And this is where things get really interesting. Um, Kobe City was going through some old archives and they dug up his recipe. It still mm-hmm. existed. His and it, to me, that's fascinating. That I mean, that's of wild. all the things that yeah, they, they found his recipe for brewing beer. They called up uh, Konishi Shuzo. Uh, yeah, uh, they are the Shirayuki brand. Um, pretty well known. A really big brewery. Yeah. Uh, also, they they are well known because uh, Mr. Konishi. He's what the fifteenth generation owner. At, he, at least, yeah, something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> They've been around, around yeah. since what, fifteen, fifty. There, I think. From what I think, the the uh, there are older breweries, sake breweries, but they're the the oldest that have been in the same family lineage. And I think, and it's yeah, probably, yeah. And Akiko um, is daughter. She's what, like sixteenth yeah. generation now, something so. like that. Yeah, they're big beer people. Um, they come yeah. over to to America. I always go out with them. We go around. We drink beer. They love beer. Um, he was actually the, the one of the major importers of Belgian beer going back over 20, 25 years. So before craft beer even started, Belgian beer was being imported to Japan. And he was a, a, uh, such a big um, supporter of that, or, or mm. at least he, he was one of the, the major players. He was actually knighted in Belgium. Yeah. I mean, he's a knight in yeah. Belgium for yeah. all that he's done for Duvel and these big brands. And they, of course, when the craft beer um, laws changed, they began brewing um, craft beer. And if you go to their brewery, the, the sake brewery is massive. It's yeah. just massive. Uh, yeah. the, the beer brewery is more of a, of a brew pub, but they serve both in there. Yeah. So the perfect people to take a, you know, this old recipe to, and the city took it to them and they looked it over and said, okay, let's not just brew this. Let's brew it how he probably brewed it back in the day yeah so they actually tried to recreate you know the ambient temperatures and they said he he was almost certainly like it seems inconceivable that he would have had access to some kind of beer yeast i mean Mm. it's possible he thought about cracking open a bottle and harvesting the the yeast if he had access to beer but it seems likely he used sake yeast in his beer and so they um the konishi family um made this this beer um i need to look up the name um of the beer i believe it's still available but it was a again made with sake yeast and brewed in a way that they suspect he had brewed it and it's not bad it's a little bit unusual um you know it's 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 a really interesting beer and then they refined that beer uh, and made a special sake beer hybrid for, I think it was Arima Onsen, just a special okay. on, Onsen, you know, hot spring yep. beer. And, yeah. and that one, that one, the gold medal at the World Beer Cup in the experimental beer category. Oh, wow. Um, uh, yeah, a few years after I had first encountered sake beer hybrids yeah. in 2012. So to me, that, I mean, that's a big deal. Like yeah. World Beer Cup, getting a gold medal is not easy. I mean, people can poo-poo competitions and say oh it's all a matter of luck and who the judges you know yeah. it's all a matter of taste but it's yeah. it's not you've got to be an exceptional beer yeah to get a gold medal and they did it um but again they weren't the first there were others uh, you know if i had to put without doing some really exhaustive and detailed research yeah. it's hard <laughs> to say but my guess is hitachi nones was probably the first 
because they were they got a, a really good start on craft beer brewing. They were one of the early successes. Um, they were you know experimenting early on, um, and I bet they were one of the first to do a, a sort of sake beer hybrid. Uh, they continued to produce one. Uh, it's part of their main lineup. Um, again, I don't remember the name of it, but um, you know, just just I'm to sure say a, that a Konishi isn't the, the first yeah. and the only, but it's significant that they won a gold yeah. medal and that there are other major craft breweries in in Japan doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. Going it's interesting to- that you brought up that you brought up Konishi as well too, and that just because they that's a good example of a sake brewery playing a really really significant role in the world of beer in general here in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they like you said they were um, they were really really early into the game and and bringing you know at the time when they were bringing inner high quality international beers to japan Mm -hmm. i mean that was that was a a pivotal time right i mean that changed the the impression of what or or i guess of what probably a lot of japanese perceived as to what a beer could be and and the value associated with different styles of beer. yeah um and this is sort of a uh um digression but uh we are talking about beer today uh the craft beer movement really didn't again didn't start till 1995 belgian beer came in before that and you know beer in japan macro beer had been on a decline since the Mm. 70s just consumption was slowing Mm. down um but belgian beer came in in the late 90s and it was expensive and it was an import yeah it was high alcohol and like any like even now you drink belgian beer it's bold it's assertive it's it really will blow your mind if you're not you know accustomed to it and it helped acclimate japanese drinkers to boldly flavored beers and premium priced beers and it's hard to imagine the craft beer movement having taken off to the extent it did if belgian beer hadn't acclimated people's wallets and palates to that that style of beer so Konishi deserves a lot of credit for that and he's respected you know their yeah. their beer contributions beyond that are admittedly small their their mm. craft brewery is small and yeah you know, like a, a brew pub but I, I you know he's he's been a very vocal proponent of defining craft beer in japan it unfortunately doesn't have a um industry definition and he said you know he said very passionately to all the craft brewers. Look, you built up this great culture of craft beer, and yet you're not going to define it, which is going to allow anyone to exploit that. And he was re- referencing the macro brewers or the big international brewers, and of course they did. They came in and said, "Well, we're 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 opening up a craft brewery too. Well, how is it a craft brewery if you know if it's brewed on your big industrial system?" And they said, "Well, there's no definition, so we can say whatever we want." And and you know, that's, that's where we are today. And, yeah. Um, yeah. but returning, returning to that history about, you know, Kolmin Bakshu, of course, mm. um, the floodgates opened up shortly thereafter. Commodore Perry, of course, um, uh, caused that in, in many ways. And, you know, 1868 Meiji restoration, um, allowed basically a flood of, of internationals to enter Japan. They mostly settled around Yokohama, um, the, the Yamate Bluff area. And of course, it wasn't long after that, you know, breweries began to be set up. But um, we, we don't really know um, 
what they were using. But of course, at that time, the boats were, you know, this was 1868, 1869. The first breweries probably set up in the 70s. Spring Valley is credited as the oldest, but there are records stating that there were other breweries up there in the hills. So there were entrepreneurs brewing beer in Japan in 1870s who were not Japanese. They were, you know, Norwegian, American, German, whatever, British. They were getting real deal uh, beer supplies from Europe and you know possibly America and they were almost certainly brewing with beer yeast it doesn't seem conceivable that they would have used sake yeast because the necessity was gone was gone or they, rather they, had access the, to, they were yeah. they were setting up formal operations to make the beer that they knew and loved exactly yeah yeah so you know then you go through gosh 120 30 years until you get to the craft beer revolution before sake and beer hybrids kick off again. So there was that, that big sort of blank period. Now, did somebody do it during that time? Maybe I I just, I've never encountered it. Like, why would they? It just, it doesn't, it it would be a pretty radical break of the imagination to suddenly say, Hey, let's, you know, brew beer and sake, you know, that, that idea was very much a part of the craft beer movement, which was trying to set itself off from, um, you know, macro light lagers. So there was, yeah. there was a certain um, zeitgeist going on that enabled brewers to conceive of these types of hybrids. But, you know, prior to the craft beer movement, it just doesn't seem likely that people did. Yeah. But then, then it happened 1995, 96. And, and of course, Japanese craft brewers, um, especially those that were running sake breweries started doing these experiments. Um, if we could, I can talk a little bit about, you know, what some of those hybrids are. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it, it'd probably be useful to kind of ex- maybe kind of lay out exactly when, when we're talking about a beer sake hybrid, exactly yeah. what, what, what goes into a beer sake hybrid. So I, I met, there's kind of a gradation, right? I mean, right, exactly. I mean, on a very, on probably the simplest level, I, it would be a stretch to maybe call it a hybrid, but for example, mm-hmm. here in Japan, um, rice is a staple, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you've seen, for example, Koshi Hikari beers for a long time, that, right? That, whereas, yeah, yeah, you know, like in the, right. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, for example, in the U S you look at rice as sort of a, a cheap adjunct or something like that right. here, it was something that was used to raise the value of mm-hmm. the beer in the can here. Here's our, here's our local beer that uses this local variety of the rice that you love, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and there's from a brewing standpoint, it's, it's a beer, you know, but I mean, that's, that's probably the, a very, very basic example of kind of, I don't, I don't, you know, and then then down the road and start to get other ingredients. So maybe to kind of lay out what these different, when we're talking hybrids, what, 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 what could be going into these products and what we're sort of talking about. And again, there's no industry definition there's no rule there's no you know like nobody's laid down the law but again we're we're talking you know garrett oliver you know he's one of the most respected brewers in the world hands down you know uh you've got will myers another one one of the most respected brewers you've got todd bellamy you've got these people whom um have whom have garnered a lot of respect over the years saying, look, you know, and we can't really call it a hybrid unless it really is, unless there's some fundamental change in how you're, you're brewing it. So they all seem to agree that using Koji 
in your in your brewing is, is really going to change the character of the beer and certainly there are hybrids like that so if we we think of that as like sort of the the ideal mm. the penultimate example yeah. i think that's helpful i do think it's helpful yeah absolutely but you know we it's not to say we can't call something else a hybrid and i you know just to give you an example that i i really like one of the early ones i had um here in san francisco you've got sequoia sake and not far away from them you have bear bottle uh craft brewery which is you know run by a, a second or third generation japanese guy named lester koga so jake over at um sequoia took some freshly pressed lees over to bear bottle and of course you know the, the yeast would still have been active and lester said they pitched it but, you know instead of pitching yeast they took the lees and pitched you know pitched the lees and that's, that's really interesting to me. You know, you're, you're not just, you know, throwing sake yeast in, you're throwing the, the lees in as well. And, and the, the, the beer came out just absolutely bone dry, like a champagne. It was really interesting. And, and to me, that kind of experimentation would seem to qualify. I mean, why not? You know, mm. so there are brewers using lees, some are using koji, mm. but to go back to, you know, your basic point, if you use sake rice in a beer, does it make it a hybrid? Well, not really, no. but it's interesting, right? Yeah. But can you, you know, does it pull out the flavor? Well, not really. It's like drinking air sometimes. Yeah. That's yeah, the yeah, problem yeah. with, with yeah, rice. Yeah, you, yeah. you throw in some great, you know, high grade Yamada Nishiki in your beer. Like we've just wasted it maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's cool from a branding perspective, but does yeah. it actually change the character of the beer? It's really hard. Yeah. And I know that Mark Melly and I have both tried, we've laid out, you know, okay, here's some cool, you know, um, Koshikari beer from Echigo, yep. the, the first the first Japanese craft brewery in 1995. They make a Koshikari yep. rice beer. That's, that's, that's really that, that was sort of what I was thinking yeah. of, right? That's 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 kind of a, an, so, an iconic. Yeah, so the first product, right first Japanese craft brewery to go online has used you know made a rice beer from the beginning. Um, you know, Shiga Kogan makes the rice beer using estate grown rice, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. He grows his yep. own rice and he, he uses it. And, and, you know, there's others, but you drink it, you know, um, and it's really hard to, to tell, you know, the, the difference. You, yeah. It's like, okay, it's a nice, clean, dry rice beer, but you, the, the character sort of fades. Yeah. Or you pitch sake yeast. Well, what is, what, you know, that can change things definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, but you know, sake yeast is, is kind of, it's descended from a, a beer yeast. And I know mm -hmm. this from, from talking to Chris White of, of White Labs Yeast in San Diego, one of the more famous uh, mm -hmm. yeast laboratories yep. in, in America. And we, we had a discussion about this. He has some yeast, uh, sake yeast strains mm -hmm. in his lab that are available to brewers and brewers like to use it, mm -hmm. but it's more a marketing ploy. Oh, we use sake yeast. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, does it fundamentally change the character of a beer? Well, of course a yeast can, but does it make it a hybrid? I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know. What's interesting to me is that it's much harder to go the opposite direction. I know that with this beer that sort of caught everyone's attention recently, was it Heiwa Shuzo? Did the mm. Takagi, you know, the, the brewer Takagi wanted to make a sort of sake beer hybrid and she wanted to use beer yeast to try to make a sake, which is yes. difficult because, you know, the, the high alcohol of, of sake makes it yep. really difficult to find a viable yep. yeast. I yep. mean, maybe, maybe there's some beer yeast out there that can withstand high levels of alcohol, but yeah. it, it's very difficult. And then in the end, they made a beer with sake yeast. And mm. I think they, they added some other adjunct and the, and the beer was really popular. Yeah. 
but you know, again, it was a, it was a beer with sake yeast. Yep. Now, so other stuff again that I've seen, like wh- what happens if you use rice and sake yeast in your beer, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Are we, so you're getting yeah, yeah, closer yeah, yeah. to that center. Well, what happens yeah. if you do this, this, and this, or yeah. like you use, you use uh, like sake rice and sake yeast, and then you age it in an old sake barrel and get yeah. some of that character. So there are people who are aging in sake barrels. It's not very common, but there are people yeah. doing it. And then of course you, you get to the point where, well, if you pitch rice or koji in with it, then you're going to have koji acting on, on some of the, the process mm-hmm. in, in a way that's, that's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, to go back to what Will Myers and, and Todd Bellamy were doing, they were, they were taking two different warts, so to mm-hmm. speak. I mean, in, in Saki, you don't call it wart, but yeah. they were apparently like, you know, blending it together. I mean, yeah. that was pretty extreme. Yeah. Um, so you can go that far, but then you get into some total alien hybrid yeah. beverage yeah. that yeah, yeah, you know yeah. is, is very um love or hate yeah and then and then, and then going over to the other side of the spectrum like what happens once you get to sake and what what's common um you know you use sake or you have sake and i, I think the common approach is to dry hop it mm-hmm. you know to add hops and yeah. um in america i think setting sun down in los angeles was the first to do that mm-hmm. um and I, I spoke to him at sake day in san francisco mm-hmm. uh, josh he said, you know, until somebody tells us otherwise, we're going to, you know, plant the flag as the first, you know, they, they're, but they were, they were a, a beer brewery who said, Hey, let's try a hop sake. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. I like it, but yeah. not everyone does. Yeah. Um, I know that Brooklyn Kuda, um, mm-hmm. Brandon and, and those guys mm-hmm. did a dry hop sake. Uh, that was pretty good. And I had that a few yeah, years ago. It came out real nice. And Konishi mm-hmm. uh, sent us a sample at our office of a dry hopped sake and asked us our, our brutally honest opinion. And, you know, Brian, my operations manager, who does a lot of the articles in Saki today said, yeah, no, thanks. Yeah. And his point was interesting without knowing what the judges at World Beer Cup had told me, you know, eight years earlier, he said, you know, when I want a hopped up beer, I'll go get an IPA. And when I want sake, I want I'll drink sake. I don't really want a hopped up sake. Yeah. Yeah. And in Akiko Konishi was really nice. Thanks, thanks for your honest opinion. They released yeah. it anyway. And it's yeah. doing well. As far as I know, I see it on yeah. shelves you know, here in America. Yeah. And it's actually, I like it. Yeah. But again, it's like one of those things tonight. I'm, I think I'm going to have this different beverage here. I'm going to have a hopped yeah. up sake. Yeah. Most of the time I would prefer to have just a nice clean premium sake or go get my IPA. So there's yeah. definitely a mood for that stuff beyond the hop sake, which, you know, a lot of people are doing at least in America mm. um, again, to try to attract that craft beer crowd mm you know, after that, what do you do? I mean, like sake brewers in Japan, it's not like they're using malted barley in their sake, yeah. then it can't be called sake anymore. Yeah. So what, what, uh, I guess you could age it in a aging sake in a whiskey barrel, like, mm. you know, cause there's barrel aged beer. Yep. So there are people doing that. Yep. I know that Jake at Sequoia did it. He did a, a whiskey barrel aged sake and it was definitely different. It yep. was, it was an experience to drink. Yeah. I only, I think there's maybe one or two doing it in Japan, but after that, like, where do, where do you, where do you go with sake to make it a hybrid um, yeah. infusions? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you're starting to see with a lot of the, uh, the newer, what we'll call them sake breweries, but the ones that are more de- dedicated uh, from a license standpoint, they're basically making dobudoku and they're kind of mm. blurring the lines and mm-hmm. 
doing a lot of sort of creative stuff and it's yeah you're seeing stuff like hops and infusions and other types of things mm -hmm. that are sort of leaning into both there was one released recently oh it's the it was the one brewery up in fukushima the, the name uh hakoba i believe up in fukushima and they did one where they essentially um pitched miso into it oh. and, ma and made a goza style interesting nigori essentially yeah, but yeah. it's you know and so it's um yeah you're you're starting to see some right. some stuff like that but um, i think it, it's it's it seems to me easier to start with beer and make a hybrid mm. of some kind or sake inspired um beverage than it is to start from sake and go toward beer your, your options yeah. seem limited yeah. saying that now now saying that maybe th there's some opportunity for innovation there or mm. exploration maybe there are some 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 brewers uh, my guess is it would be in a place like a you know, America or overseas, I think, you know, the, the sake industry in Japan is so extremely conservative. And I, yeah. I can't imagine many brewers saying, hey, let's take a sake and try to make it more beer like. It, it, again, it would legally cease to be sake. Yeah. Um, and then you have to wonder about reception. Whereas in America, there's a lot more acceptance mm -hmm. of these sort of hybrid beverages and, and a willingness to try to do different, even weird things, even yeah. wrong things with yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, j j just to have something new coming out, right, consistently to keep to keep, you know, mind share and keep people on their yeah. toes. And, to and then um, two two other things that that tie into this. Uh, one, I, I do want to get back to the identity of of sake in America. Yeah. We have so many of these hybrids, but before that, I, it was kind of revelational. I was looking up the. Um, I was invited to the World Beer Cup again uh, as a judge, you know, before COVID shut it down. Um, and I was just sort of reading over the categories and you can request categories. Um, you're not always assigned them, but, you know, I, I always like these historical and experimental beer mm. categories. Yeah. And I've always been assigned them because you get, you get to see the cutting edge of brewing. Mm. And I was reading up on the experimental beer category and they have a subcategory now for beer and sake hybrids. Okay. I mean, it just blew my mind. I mean, wow. that's how many are being made out there. There's yeah. so many being made and entered into the competition that they made a subcategory for yeah. it. And sure enough, you go around and I, I started taking notes, you know, whenever I was at a, you know, a tap room in America and you'd see what they were calling sake and beer hybrids. They weren't really, you know, it was like, oh, we made this beer with sake yeast or we yeah. made this beer with sake rice but it's interesting that enough brewers are trying to tap into that whole japanese vibe yeah. or sake vibe which says a lot Absolutely. of it's good for sake it's great visibility when you right? go into like a a tap room in in some unexpected place and there's a sake beer up yeah. on, on the board it's just great for the visibility of sake um so you know you have that aspect the, the whole competition aspect where this, this blurring of the lines between beer and sake is now being recognized as a sort of mm. loose subcategory. And I think yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, but it's become such a trend now that, again, these sake breweries in America, most of them are doing some sort of either, you know, a hopped sake or, or some sort of fusion or infused beverage. And, I, you know, I've seen some tap menus where they're doing more of that than they are just straight up sake. And it's mm. like, Ooh, we're getting in like, are you a cocktail brewery or are yeah. you a sake brewery? You know, it yeah. worries me a little bit about, yeah. because I, I want, I want American sake to succeed. And I, I think the appeal or the main thrust needs to be with a really quality 
brewed sake first, mm. just a, a straight up pure sake. Yeah. Um, and sure, if you want to do a, a hop sake, great. Or you want to do an infused sake. I mean, fine. They're, mm. they're sort of popular. People like them. They're, they're, to me, they're more like a, a cocktail than, than sake. But yeah. I, I feel like there is some danger in, in alienating consumers or not actually bringing them into the sake fold when you're yeah. doing these kinds of, of hybrids and infusions too much. Yeah. And oh gosh, it's kind of tough to pinpoint exactly what yeah, it is. And then, you know. and then, oh my gosh, at the last sake day in San Francisco, somebody, you know, some brewers came up to me and said, yeah, we're thinking about doing like a, a sake seltzer. And I, was like, no, <laughs> I was just going to no. say that is, where is it's only a matter of time until we have Do the, the dry hop sake that, hard no. seltzer that's coming. <laughs> I, I had to in, inform this person. I was like, listen, seltzer is already going off the cliff. And um, I, we've always joked in, in our, in both magazines that like, Hey America, like you've got this great craft beer scene. Why in the world are you guys making hard seltzer? It's just a cheap version of sparkling sake. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and it's true. It's like, gosh, if you're going to drink yeah. that, you might as well drink sparkling sake. Yeah. One, one thing that just occurred to me, um, it, it's an interesting concept of a hybrid. It's not really a hybrid, but it's a, it's a way of placing sake in that, that beer category is of course, draft sake. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that, you, that is something we didn't bring up, but it's, yeah. It, the, the, I mean, the, why? It, it seems so cool, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the, the first place I saw draft sake was shortly after I started Japan Beer Times. It would have been 10 years ago, at least 11 years ago. Ushitora and so uh, that's the first place I had it too. It was probably about back then when I went in there because I would go there for beer occasionally, and they always had sake. sake they always had tap. something. They always had one something on tap in there, and it was fantastic. Right, and it and was wonderful. And I was like, so they they deserve credit for yeah. you know putting the two side by side. Yeah. Uh, and I, just I people think... know, Ushitora is a pretty is is an exceptional craft beer brewery here now yeah well, they, too. They at, the day, at the time they were just know, a bar they right? were a bar but yeah but to put the taps side by side and they also i think were pioneers in some of the technological difficulties of hooking up you can't just like cook sake up yeah. to a tap right yeah. you know yeah, 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 yeah. you got to keg it somehow you got to yeah. you got to you you got to pressurize it to send it through there and i think they might have been you know ones to realize that you could you know pressurize it um i think people have discovered that that nitro lines are the best um and that that was a great way to get into restaurants and stuff because then they can just hook it up to their tap system yeah their pre-existing system, system they don't have to make an extra space or do anything yeah yeah it's not it's not beer or sake hybrid obviously but it's it's placing yeah. sake in presenting it as beer without having to beerify the sake with hops yeah, or infusions. Absolutely. So I, yeah, absolutely. I, and, it's, and, it, and it's, and it's a pretty, that. it's a pretty honest representation of, of the sake too. Right. I mean, it's not too far off from imagine it being pulled straight from the straight from the press in the brewery, you sure. know, when you, when you still got a little bit of that effervescence kind of living in there and, you know, and then when, if you're at the bar and you're pouring it into, you know, you have all kinds of glass options there that it could be something a little closer to, beer yeah and i guess another i don't know maybe this is a little bit of a tangent but a, a question that i sort of keep posing to myself and I, I i really don't know what the answer is is that you know now we're in a world where like you said the craft beer the true craft beer you know movement really started like you said in the mid 90s so now here we are 30 years down the road 
um, and craft beer in Japan has gotten much, much, much better over that time, as well as become much more available. Um, like I said, the, the, the big mega breweries have worked their way in there for better or for worse. And, you know, it's kind of, it's gone through a number of different growing pains and things. Um, and the one thing that I keep asking myself is what is, what defines Japanese craft beer or what is a really unique Japanese craft beer style? You know, I mean, cause it, over time you have these different styles that evolve in different places, right? You know, uh, you could probably say that, you know, the IPA has kind of come to define, mm-hmm. you know, the American craft beer experience for that, that, um, that's a and hard it's, one. Yeah. And it's, and it's come to really sort of, you know, in Japan sort of really like they do with a lot of things. They, they borrow from other places, right. It was the early influence from the Belgians type stuff and the German beers that were imp- that were imported, you know, in the eighties and nineties that kind of helped define a lot of the styles that were being made early. Um, whereas it's been a lot of the, um, the explosion of the American craft beer scene that sort of really influenced a lot of what was getting made a lot in Japan. Whereas now I feel like we're starting to kind of get to a point where, you know, the level of quality has gotten a lot higher here, you know, and they're getting accustomed to brewing their own version or styles of the IPAs and whatnot. Um, and it's start, you're starting to see more Japanese craft breweries start to venture out into not necessarily sake hybrids or anything, but kind of unknown territory, I guess, and start to make mm. different sort of ex- experimental beers, you know, and I, and I just, I wonder if there is a world where there is a, you know, a Jap, a, a style of, of craft beer in Japan that is that, that is sort of can be something that can uniquely be associated with here. And, 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 I, and I guess the thing for me is I keep coming back to Koji as well, mm-hmm. you know, even though there aren't a lot of examples of it out there yet, that's the one thing that I keep coming back to is being maybe something that the craft beer industry here mm-hmm. can tap into. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> just to show the, the big picture first, when you say yeah. like, English style IPA, everyone sort of knows what you're talking about. Or if you say, you know, Belgian style, there's definitely a sort of yeast driven, you know, high gravity flavor Mm. component to those, those types of beers, or even, you know, in America, you say West coast style IPA, you know, just super dry and bright or, you know, Northeast IPAs, these cloudy IPAs. So it's interesting that you have these sort of regional identities form around. And I, I think they have pretty strong claims to those, identities but like when you say japanese beer what's what's you know what's what do most people think of and i do think they first envision these sort of industrial light lagers yep for better or worse and and japan's industrial light lagers do not suck they're good no in the grand scheme of things absolutely they're they're pretty good and you know they have they're stable and um but the, the sort of dry, light dryness, you know, we talk about Asahi dry, but there is yeah. definitely this character to Japanese beer. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. associate. And again, in, in Professor Melly touches on it in his book, is there something that's quintessentially Japanese, like, mm-hmm. you know, dry, dry beer. Mm-hmm. And there's an argument to be made there. And I think it, it bears out in, in, in general consciousness. You know, people think mm-hmm. of, of, of dry, dry beers, but when you look at the craft beer scene in Japan, it was 
there's a definite German influence from the beginning when, when the laws changed in 1995, they were like, Hey, we can make beer now. Wait. Yeah. Who knows how to make beer? I don't yeah, do you know. Right? Right? Hey, let's hire some Germans. Go, go to the source. To... Yeah, <laughs> they, they did. They there were like eighty some Germans in the country. Yeah. There was even a society of German brewers in Japan yeah. back in the nineties. And some places hired them for two weeks and like, yeah, we got it. Get out. Yep, totally. Or maybe it was two months. Some of them yeah. stayed a little bit longer. Echigo's yeah. first brewery, Marcus. Uh, yeah. He's still in Japan. He runs a yeah. brewery equipment and raw material import company. Yeah. So good for him for staying. Yeah. He's like the last yeah. man standing. Um, <laughs> So the, that German influence uh, was huge. Uh, and, that, and it's the reason why today you still see a lot of German beers and a lot mm. of Japanese craft breweries make German beers very well. I'll, mm. I'll never forget, you know, being at a World Beer Cup where some Japanese, I think it's Fuji Sakura, he, mm. he makes incredible world-class German style beers. Mm. He, he won a gold medal. And I remember sitting beside the tables uh, where all the German brewers were, and they're like, "What?" You know, because everyone's there, everyone's cheering. Yeah. Think of the gold medal; it's going to go to a yeah. German brewery. And some Japanese guy gets up and goes and gets the yeah. word, and they're like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know, Japanese craft beer um, in the Japanese craft beer scene. There's some incredible German style beers. Mm. There still are to this day. Yeah. In fact, there you know there's there was a German brewer for a long time. Actually, Johan up at Otaru mm. was still up mm. there. He retired recently, but was making. You know, very strict, uh, according to the German brewing law, the German beers based on his family recipes. So um, that's one aspect. Um, Japanese craft beer is sort of German-esque. But, mm -hmm. you know, in recent years, it's changed a lot uh, to reflect more American and, mm. and other styles. But when it started out in, in, in um, 1995, everyone's like, well, what? There wasn't even a word for craft beer back then. It was GBU. You know, yeah. same to like Jizake, Jizake. Like region. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they just sort of mapped um, Jizake over the word beer. It's like, oh, well, local beer. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Nobody really knew what it means. They interpret it in their own way. Well, I guess it means we have to use local ingredients to make it local. And yeah. so that was a big part of the theme uh, in those early days. So people were using like local strawberries, local yeah. uh, peaches, you know, local apples or in, in one <laughs> really unfortunate situation local tomatoes in their ipa yeah local product yeah you know? and you still see a lot of that right you see you the number the number of yuzu that you find in beers the number of kabosu citrus that you uh, see don't in get beers. me started on yuzu yeah um, <laughs> kabosu sancho sancho yeah. pepper kabocha pumpkin you know there's there's a handful that you see mm -hmm. just used really really consistently i and i think it's good um in in america too obviously craft brewers everywhere use local ingredients it was a yeah. part of i mean beer the history of beer is a, in many ways the history of agriculture and, yep. and still in, in many parts of europe you know beer is, is closely related to agriculture and grew out of that yeah um but definitely you know there are aspects of, of beer in in craft beer in America where, you know, like, oh, well, this is like the state fruit. So we're going to use it in our beer. You know, obviously in, in Georgia, I'm sure there's a bunch of craft breweries making peach flavored beers, for example. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in Japan, it was definitely pronounced and it's still a part of the craft brewing DNA. And to this day, breweries use local ingredients. And I think it's great. They hook up yeah. with local farmers totally. who, who need all the help that they can get. So to, to me, and that's also the way that uh, Japanese, well, the industry has in many ways, or at least Jetro and, and Jfudo has been trying to promote them overseas is, mm -hmm. is, is through these exotic 
yeah. green ingredients that yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they only use like matcha yeah. from their local you know yeah, 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 tea yeah. plantation or whatever so yeah. I, it, it's also being exploited and marketed and mm. i think it's fine yeah. it, consumers are buying into it here in america i can't speak for europe but I, that's definitely something that's fundamentally japanese and you mentioned, you know, experimentation, people going out and trying new things. And I, again, I think it's part of that pursuit of let's find some quintessentially Japanese weird ingredient to put in there and make it like a Japanese beer. Yeah. And if they could do that, fine. Yeah. Um, but overall, is there like a certain character to Japanese beer? You may be right that Koji is the way to go. And if you look at the World Beer Cup categories, you know, there's English style IPAs, American style pale ales, you know, there's even, you know, Australian style lagers or whatever yeah. they call it these days, these uh, Pacific. So it seems like every region and many countries have this sort of claim to a category, but Japan, there, you don't see like, you know, Japanese style light lagers. It's, it's under international right. lagers. You don't see Japanese style fruit beers. It's under fruit beers or, but suddenly when that subcategory popped up, sake beer hybrids, I mean, who doesn't think of Japan? Yeah. Absolutely. And so they're sort of carving out their niche in the, the international craft beer scene with these, these sake beer hybrids, which were started in Japan. Right. Maybe five years from now, it'll be a, Koji ale will be a, will be a subcategory. That would be interesting. A Koji I mean, ale. Wouldn't that yeah. be well, or yeah. at the end of the day, we'll just end up with a um, Japanese rice lager is going to be the. <laughs> well, then... You see a lot of those. Right. This has been yes, fascinating <laughs> and very insightful. This is this has been a good uh, history lesson and a fantastic thought exercise. And I said, I'm always after always after I do one of these, I I'm overwhelmed with the need to go and open a bottle of sake. Whereas now I have two beverages that I actually have to hunt down. Not that they're that far away; they're probably only twenty steps down the hall. But you know, now I'm now I'm motivated to find both a, a and we haven't even talked about like, sake. So like you know other crazy stuff like you know boiler makers instead of boiler makers you yeah. drop a shot of sake in your beer and chug yeah, yeah. it and yeah. things like right. that i mean that's... Um, oh which just reminds me if we still have time here shoot um cycle sushi down in san diego yeah. had a legit program of sake and beer pairing and cool. yeah so psycho cycle sushi uh in san diego um two locations i think but uh, at one of them you know they have an extensive they, they, they really pushed the, the sake scene in San Diego. They were the pioneers. Um, um, of course, uh, Bishak Ramen came along and they, they also have a great program. But they were literally behind the bar night after night, you know, sipping sake, sipping craft beer, trying different combinations. And they came up with a program. You come in, you sit at the bar and you can do a sake and beer pairing. Yeah. I mean, wow. So wow. you would think the two would like, you know, compete with each other, but they found out ways like with well, this beer and this sake, you know, go well together so if you want to yeah. sip on both they, they will yeah. sort of accentuate each other yeah um, so there's possibilities like that as well and that was really cool with what they did and i, I don't know I, I know some of the people that were involved in that have have since left but cycle mm. sushi is still there mm. um but really int intriguing possibilities there right and that's a, and that's a that's a cool that 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 would probably offer a lot of insight as to exactly how sake and beer could then support one another in interesting yeah. ways, right? From a profile standpoint, that could, that could offer some really interesting hints as to where future, what, 
hybrids or crossovers or whatever, where, the, where, the, where those yeah. might go down the road as well too. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Right. Thank you, sir. Yes. No, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll have you back on again here. We got a, we got a few more topics we got to delve into. So I look forward to having you back on the show here again soon. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And that will do it for this week's episode of Sake on Air. If you have a moment, please do pop on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening service and leave us a kind review. And go ahead and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook over at, at Sake on Air. You can go ahead and send any questions that you might have to questions at sakeonair.com. We'll be back with plenty more Sake on Air very shortly. Until then, come by. Sake on Air is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with audio production by Mr. Frank Walton.